Amen. Singing like that, this boy is ready to preach. And besides that, I am wearing a sweater vest, so watch out. You know you're a real preacher when you get on the sweater vest. If you were here a few weeks ago, you remember that story. So, yeah, Um, got the sweater vest on, we're ready to go. Therefore, our sermon today is the resurrection. Therefore, therefore, it's a conjunctive adverb. So it links what went before, all the reasons and explanations, with what is to follow. Maybe our most famous cliche, even now, therefore statement is, I think, therefore, I am. It introduces the consequences or the results of the previous statements. And as a teacher of mine used to ask, you got to find out what is the therefore, therefore. And so when I was considering what to preach this week with Palm Sunday today, but next week, Easter Sunday, where we start our private prayer sermon series with a look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that's in John 17. That'll be our text for next week if you want to read ahead. I thought, I've got to preach the resurrection this week. So my mind went to thinking of resurrection texts, and of course, I thought of 1 Corinthians 15. And then as I read through it and I got to verse 58, I went, the whole previous part of the chapter, verses 1 through 57, is an argument that's summarized with the therefore in verse 58. How do I handle that as a preacher with only 25 minutes? Well, you read the entire text. And we let Paul speak for himself. I'll insert some statements along the way and try to add some structure for our understanding, as is my custom and habit here as your pastor and friend. But we're going to let Scripture speak for itself. 1 Corinthians, if you haven't turned there already, please join us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll get there in just a moment. 1 Corinthians is for all purposes a uh, practical theology book. Uh, Paul is looking at issues in the church at Corinth, and as the person that pastor or uh, planted them, and as an apostle, he's giving them advice and saying, here's how to handle this problem. And so we get practical issues, but we also get theology. So that's why I call it practical theology. And what you find in 1 Corinthians 15 is the single most comprehensive chapter in the Bible uh, explaining the resurrection. And it's from a couple different angles, as we'll see as we read through. But verse 12 is really the key. Because verse 12 asks a question. It says, but if if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? So why is the resurrection so important? What, what's the big deal? Why would there be an entire chapter, the longest chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians? And why would you devote a whole sermon to reading this entire chapter? Well, as Christ followers, for us to deny the resurrection has some great and terrible implications. If we deny the resurrection, we would deny it implicitly. We deny the res- resurrection is the opposite of the apostolic gospel. To deny the resurrection means that we deny Jesus' full humanity. He wasn't a person, and that has theological implications. And to deny the resurrection is a call to question God's sovereignty. 
and His transformational power. So the resurrection is the key to what it means to be a believer in Jesus. It's the foundation of our faith that everything else is built upon. The resurrection, that's the first 57 verses of our sermon today. As we consider that Jesus was resurrected, Jesus was resurrected, the first 11 verses in our sermon. So we get the centrality of the resurrection to the gospel. Paul is not trying to prove the resurrection. He's assuming that those in first the church in Corinth understand that. But he shows it's central and unquestioned from the beginning. Before we read our scripture, let me pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now with this chapter of your word in front of us. And our hearts and minds hopefully open that you would speak to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit this morning. That we would see the importance of Jesus' resurrection, of our resurrection, and of the fact that we will have resurrection bodies that are different, and how these three facts make all the difference in how we live our lives day to day. We thank you, Father, for your presence among us by the Spirit and the gift you give us by your word. And we pray now that we would be obedient and full of faith and response in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. So verses 1 through 11, Paul lays out this argument. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I preach to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, and if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So from the very beginning, Paul is making a gospel argument, and he's going to explain the resurrection as a facet of the gospel. Verse 3 and 4 are Awana kids memorize, and those of us as adults that are not Awana kids should probably memorize it as well. Look at what it says there. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul says that. On these four truths that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared to them, that is evidence or proof of the gospel. And he gives these different groups of people to the apostles, to James, to 500, and even to him as witnesses that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was, in fact, a reality. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I was persecuted, because I persecuted, excuse me, the church of God. Remember, Paul was Saul before and he was zealous to persecute believers in Jesus. But it was on the Damascus road that Jesus came to him and changed his life forever. You got to go back and read that in Acts chapter 9 if you're not familiar. Verse 10. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. How many of you feel that way this morning? But by the grace of God, you are what you are. And his grace to you was not without effect. Because you look at your life and you say, here's where I was. Here's the I struggled with, but here's where I am. And even though I'm not like Christ yet, and even though I'm not set free yet, and even though I'm not in heaven yet, I am different than the way I was. His grace with me on me was not without effect. Can I get an amen? No, I worked harder than all of them, Paul says. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. There's stuff we do as believers in Jesus. We should practice spiritual disciplines of reading our Bible, of prayer, of journaling, of fasting, of all other types of habits to help focus our mind's attention and our heart's affection on God in a relationship with Him. Yet it is His grace that makes the difference. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preached And this is what you believed. So Paul is saying in those first 11 verses, Jesus was resurrected. Here's the evidences and proofs thereof and people that are still alive today that saw him, even me. And then you see my life is an example of it. Therefore, even still. And he paves the way for a second section of our scripture about the resurrection beginning In verse 12, but let's get that point on the board first, that Christ followers will be resurrected. So Jesus himself was resurrected, but the second point is that Christ followers will be resurrected. And that's in verses 12 through 34, where again, Paul lawyerly is laying out an argument for those of us that read it today even to follow. So let's go to verse 12 again. He says, but... If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that if there is no resurrection from the dead? So what Paul is going to do here is uh, probe some theological, some ethical, some practical dilemmas if there's no resurrection for the dead. And he's also going to look at some positive consequences that uh, there is resurrection from the dead. So let's begin reading there in verse 12 or 13 again. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's one proof he's giving. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's a second negative consequence. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, in fact, uh, from the dead, and we are not raised So he's saying, we're liars. That's a third negative consequence. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's a pretty terrible negative consequence. Verse 18, then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Another negative consequence. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. There are consequences. 
and even personal consequences to each and every one of us if Jesus was not raised from the dead. Then our faith is just a lie. And if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then we have hope only in this life. We're to be pitied more than all men, Paul says in verse 19. Let's go on in verse 20. Verse 20 through 28, he says there in verse 20, but Christ has indeed feet of death and God being in all. He says there in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all have been made alive. Paul's made these kind of arguments in Romans as well, where he's talking about death through Adam, but life through Christ. And here he comes back to that, verse 23. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 24. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God, to the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. You get a little eschatology. What in times is going to happen here? Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What is Jesus going to do? Because he is resurrected from the dead, this is what Jesus is going to do. Verse 27, he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Redeemer, the redeemed, and the restoration is what we heard in those verses. Jesus is the redeemer. We are the redeemed, and there will be a restoration, a new heaven and a new earth for those who are believers in Jesus. So let's move on to our next section of Paul's argument here about Christ's followers being resurrection. That's verses 29 through 34 when he talks about the consequences of the resurrection even further. He says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink tomorrow for we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Paul's warning them and he's saying we've got to be careful of what we say and what we do. And if there is no resurrection, it's all for naught. He's saying that, yes, Christ's followers will be resurrected. Which leads to our third major point. And that's Christ's followers will have a resurrection body. Not only was Jesus resurrected, Christ's followers themselves will be resurrected but that we will have a different sort of body. 
Paul writing to the church at Corinth, a city influenced by Greeks. And even though many of the church may have been Jewish originally, they had a Greek mindset. And one of the major sticking points for Greek people was, how are you going to have a resurrection body? They believed thoughts was everything and the body was nothing. And so uh, what's the big deal and how's it going to make a difference is their thinking. And so we're going to take up that question of the resurrection body and Paul will conclude with exhortations to the church. So reading in verse 35, if you'll join me. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? How foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul's giving a simple argument from plant life. you got to have a seed die and go to the ground before it can grow up. He's going to say, we're going to die as well before we're resurrected. Verse 37, when you sow, do you not plant the body that will be just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else? Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but splendor of heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. Paul doing his thing, naming all the different possibilities. Hang with me now, folks. Verse 41, the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from star and splendor. Now, we could just breeze right through that, as I said, Paul doing his thing. But were you thinking about all of creation that Paul is outlining that is different in its composition that God has made in his sovereignty? And if God has the power to do all those things, look at what comes next. Verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and is raised a spiritual body. What he's saying there is all the things that wear out about this earthly body that's going in the ground, that's going to go to dust, is going to be raised as a new supernatural spiritual body. It was physical and natural, but God is going to do something new with it. Go on in verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that, the spiritual. Paul's saying it was this way from the beginning, that there was going to be a physical body that was natural and now a spiritual body that is supernatural. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man from heaven. First man, Adam, the second man, Jesus. Verse 48, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Do you follow that? We have physical bodies that will turn back to dust like Adam. Yet as believers of Jesus, we will have spiritual bodies that will bear an eternal likeness of Jesus. Amazing for us to consider. 
Let's go on as Paul continues. And what he does here in verses 50 through 57 is really explain our victory over death. So he said to us, Jesus was raised. We will be raised. We will have a resurrection body. And as a subset of us having a resurrection body, there's going to be victory for us. And that's verse 50 and following. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In other words, Christ is going to come back before some of you that read this and know this die. In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, and the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. In other words, our fleshly bodies are going to change. He's saying that in another way. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. Verse 57. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Thanks be to God, He gives us that victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since Jesus was resurrected. Since Christ followers will be resurrected. And since Christ followers will have a new body, we get to the therefore. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. That's our first sub point. Let nothing move you. That's our second. Always give yourself fully to the Lord, the work of the Lord. That's our third. Because you know, our fourth, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Therefore, that conjunction that's summarizing all the arguments from verses 1 through 57 in one verse here, and we're going to land here as a conclusion, but four points and four questions, so don't give up on me yet. Stick with me. The first one is this. Be steadfast. Because Jesus is resurrected, because we will be resurrected, because we will have a resurrected body, Paul says to us, be steadfast. Be steadfast. What does it mean to stand firm, to be strong, to be resolute, to abide? It literally means to be seated firmly, not being moved. So our question is, how is my resolve challenged? In your life, what is it that tends to challenge your resolve? Well, for me, it's like, you know, cake and ice cream and cookies and anything sugary and chocolatey. I can say, oh, I'm going to eat better. And you're like, oh, Pastor Aaron, here's some ice cream. I'm like, my resolve instantly crumbles. But maybe it's something that's not humorous and doesn't have to do with the diet. Maybe your resolve is challenged when things get hard. You don't think you have the ability or believe you can. Maybe your resolve is challenged when you're worried or anxious or you're struggling with depression and things that get you down and your resolve is like checked out. Lots of things can challenge our resolve. Paul takes it a step further with the second one. Be immovable. We're to be steadfast, but we're also to be immovable. I had a football coach in junior high school that followed me to senior high school, Coach Sandy Staples. 
And he was a real manly man for a guy named Sandy, but he had sandy blonde hair. And he was one of those kind of slobbery football coaches, you know. He'd get real excited and get the slobber in his mouth and the spittle out and everything. And I will never forget, we'd do these drills where it'd be, you know, a one-on-one drill, two guys uh, with everybody else in a ring around them just challenging to see who could push each other the furthest. And he would say to you, you boys, get after it now. You don't move. You are immovable. If you fall backwards, you're falling off a cliff to the jagged rock. 20,000 feet below. I don't know why. Friend on Facebook now, maybe I should send him a text and say, Hey, Coach Staples, I talked about you in my sermon this morning. Do you still slobber? Do you still yell about the 20,000 feet below jagged rocks? But the deal was, you were one-on-one against somebody. And you'd start out in that stance and you'd pop your pads together and you're scrambling and fighting to see if you can push that guy out or is he going to push you out? It's 20,000 feet below. But our question there, where am I tempted to compromise? You don't have Coach Staples yelling at you and you don't have the fear of jagged rocks 20,000 feet below, but what in your life tempts you to compromise? To not do what you know God's Word says. To not live like you've decided. To be less than you know God's called you to be. Anytime, all the time, it's so, so easy to compromise than to get down on yourself because you've let yourself down. You've let the Lord down. So what do you do then? Our third point helps us with that. Be wholehearted abounding, always, fully, enthusiastic, excelling. These are the other synonyms for that word there in Greek that's translated as uh, uh, or that idea, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Abounding means to exceed requirements, to overflow, to overdo. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, Paul uses that same word and it's translated lavishing. God's grace and His riches on us. Think about that. That it's so much, it's like overkill. Wait, I can't anymore. It's too much, God. So we should be wholehearted, but I've got a question to bring us back, and that's, when do I resist giving my best? Well, I resist giving my best when I don't like the person that I'm with, or when I don't like the situation, or when I'm tired, or when I'm just cross or I can resist giving my best a lot of the time, even though I know I'm supposed to be wholehearted. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's our fourth point there. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. There are times when you think, why am I doing this? I'm here with these Awana kids, and are they even paying attention? Or I'm parenting my own children, and they seem to keep doing the same things over and over again. Or me, I know right from wrong, but I just keep going back to that same sinful habit all over again. I am such a fill-in-the-blank with the word you use of yourself when you're speaking negative. But God says to us, be encouraged. Always give yourself Holy, fully, abundantly to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor is not in vain. Which leads us to our fourth and final question. Why does my life matter? 
you are created with a purpose. You're the only you there is, and your life matters because God intended you to be right here, right now. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus. To know that you, as a believer in Jesus, will be resurrected again. And you'll have a different imperishable body. And therefore, you should be steadfast, immovable, wholehearted, and encouraged. And that's why the resurrection makes all the difference for us as believers in Jesus. Let's say our scripture memory verse for the month as we're reminded of what we've done and what we call others to do. Acts 3.19 Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 3.19 Live like Easter happened. Live like the resurrection is real. Let's pray. God our Father... We've walked through this entire chapter of Scripture with all these different arguments and reasons about the resurrection. But it comes down to that, therefore, that you've called us to be steadfast, immovable, wholehearted, and encouraged because of the resurrection. So God, whatever challenges us today, Whatever gets us down, whatever sin we struggle with, we bring it to you. We thank you for your word that challenges us to be steadfast, immovable, wholehearted, and encouraged. And we pray that we will be. And God, if there's anyone here today who's not a believer in Jesus yet, would they make that decision today too? Believing that Jesus is your son and that you did raise him from the dead. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.